On with the footy, a personal journey towards Zen through playing Aussie rules. Some of you might think this topic a bit arcane, but we're on the eve of the finals, so a perspective from a player of the Australian game. But actually the talk was prompted by Ross Bolliter, who during one of his talks a few years ago now, said that no one had as yet, as far as he knew, given a talk on Australian rules football and Zen. I was sitting in the audience at the time and I thought, that's true to my heart. If I ever get the chance, I would like to do such a talk. This evening I hope to indicate how playing Aussie rules footy brought about certain experiential states that later provided reasons for me to take up the path of Zen. I was first taken down to join a team because my parents had been arguing over whether my mum was allowing me to turn into a sissy. The first time my dad took me down to the local junior side just as a, tacher, a taster to watch footy training was when I was halfway through grade three, so eight years of age. I'd been primed to anticipate this event for, for many months so I went along to footy wanting to know how and wanting to become a good player. I kept this goal for the entire time I played. Each year I wanted to know, but did not know, what it is I needed to know to keep developing. My wanting and doubt kept me tuned in to what I saw and heard. And I also had faith that the coaches knew how to best train me as well as the belief that I could become a master of footy. Yet, continually stirred by questions and doubts about the nature of footy skills, I spent many years deeply pondering, on a footy field, what or who responds and why? What is it within me that is, at every moment, responsive to the ball? I saw very early on that one didn't need to, too much natural skill to be a good player, only determination and dedication to training. I was an awkward starter, but I intuitively knew and saw on the field that mental discipline and dedicated training would bring about worthwhile results. I read and heard about the required skills, but also diligently practiced them. I exhausted vast amounts of energy on it. In relation to Zen, the Diamond Sangha approach also encourages reading, dialogue and physical practice. Zen also welcomes us, as Aiken Roshi said, to sit on the forward edge of your physical endurance. Footy like Zen has a body of practices which clarify the required skills and pass on ways to learn and enhance them. Yet no matter how much one trains, it's how one carries the form into the flow of game day which shows whether one has merely formulated a playing style or truly absorbed all those hours of training and so can embody the practice as a flowing state of perception and action. Playing footy regularly got me into a reflective and focused state of awareness that has come to be termed the zone. 
About this date, Andrew Cooper, in his The Zone, The Zen of Sports, a book I discovered actually after writing much of this speech, but I wanted to include a quote from somebody else rather than me. Cooper said, Sports psychology demonstrates that consciousness plays an essential role in athletic training, but the zone is about much more than the goal of peak performance. It provides a touchstone for approaching athletics as a spiritual path. Though largely forgotten in contemporary culture, this understanding has been part of sports throughout history. From the Olympic Games of ancient Greece to the marathon runners of Native America, to the ways of martial arts. Cooper goes on to present athletes' biographical anecdotes to prove that it is a fact that profound and extraordinary experiences are extremely common in athletics. He also says the zone is not produced by effort, yet without effort, nothing happens. For a student of Zen, this sounds a lot like the arguments about whether enlightenment is sudden or gradual. It is both. I agree with Cooper that altered states in sports are extremely common, but I would say they are also common in the arts and many other human activities. Anything that requires visualisation, solid and stable concentration and intentional action brings about such states. My experience is that practicing a sports makes you aware of mind moments in time and thus somewhat point the way to the way. Cooper also says that although the zone is indeed a place, that a map won't get you there. I disagree. Some coaches and some methods do provide a mud map that will get you there, or at least in the vicinity. Zen practices are also a map, although perhaps at first they seem equally as muddy. Accordingly, I soon found when I took up Zen as a formal practice much later in life that my early experiences of football gave me a solid foundation for meditation, insights into the natural functioning of consciousness and a sensibility that could find a home in Zen. That there can be a spiritual side to sport should be of no surprise to students of Zen. There are many stories across Zen as well as other traditions where spiritual teachers use everyday life and ordinary objects to point out both the preciousness and timelessness of this moment. Your true self is something that can be discovered wherever you are. However, the parental aim of getting me along to footy was to toughen me up, ground me, and give me better physical strength and coordination so that I could be a typical boy. Mum was aghast that Dad would expose his, his son to the brutality of footy, but somehow Dad gradually convinced her that I could just train and avoid playing an actual game. <laughs> the first time Dad took me down to the local junior side at eight years of age, the youngest side for, for me to play in were the twelves and under. Dad and I watched a squad of about 30 young boys, though some looked almost like grown-ups to me do some ball skills for about two hours before ending their session after sunset 
with about a dozen sprints up a steep slope that bordered the southern end of the Oval, Fraser Park, in Eastwick Park. By the end of their training, they looked exhausted. When they went into the change room, Dad took me in to meet the coach, who shook my hand, but then turned back to the other boys and ignored me. One of the players on the way out told me the days and times of training, and I agreed with Dad on the way home in the car that I would go. I turned up to the next training day and continued to do so for the next decade. For the first two years I was very much an outsider and wasn't really included in the group conversations at either training or school. Nevertheless, I trained regularly and went to every game. Dad also coached me at home, getting me to handball through the car window or to, <laughs> or to kick and mark off the side wall of our house. His philosophy being that if Donald Bradman could do it with a <laughs> golf ball, I could do it with a football, which was much bigger, and that the repetition builds fluency and consistency. To my father's anger, I wasn't selected to play an actual game for over a year. The policy in those days was to field the best team, and I accepted that although I was training diligently, I wasn't actually amongst the best 20. My dad considered this very painful and had a strong tendency to stir things up, to try to make things happen, but I focused on training hard and being there on game day to cheer on the team or take up a role such as boundary umpiring. I was disappointed when I wasn't named in the team, but I reflected on it and learnt not to expect anything. Was not being picked good or bad? Something was happening. My weekly training and following the ball up and down, week after week as a boundary umpire, gave me, after a year and a half, great stamina. My watchful anticipation of whether the ball was out or in and how many steps I was away from the play also made me quite good at reading what the ball would do. Anyway, my dilemma over being picked or not in the team was solved for me when the league introduced a tens and underside and all of a sudden I was one of the older players. I was reserved for the first two games of that season but then came on halfway through the third game when another player was injured. In that game I was shifted around various positions including key ones but I helped win the game. The coach and team thought I had undergone a sudden metamorphosis, but training was, will let that sneak up on you. After that debut, I was picked in every starting lineup and never dropped from the team. At the end of that year, even though I was mainly shifted around as a position player, I won the runner-up to Fairest and Best Trophy. I received a trophy every year after that as well. Training. Football training is simply simple in regard to the range of skills to be learnt and practised. It is their finessing that takes time and regular commitment. Zazen or meditation is exactly the same. The form and what to practise can be easily understood, but bringing it to fruition takes regular commitment. 
The weekly routine I had for the decade I played competitive football was skill training three days a week for between two and three hours per session, lots of incidental training, walking to school or around the house, and a official game once a week. I thought about the skills and went over them in my mind many times a day. Throughout the year and off-season, these were mixed in with longer intensive periods of training, such as development camps, intensive pre-season training, just like Session or Zazenkai's. Some pre-season training, particular stamina conditioning, was very intensive and saw five or more hours of running and weightlifting. To get through it, particularly when I was uh, young, I counted my steps and followed my breath. When that got too hard, I just counted my breath. One to ten, and not tied to my steps. I developed an ability to be very aware of fatigue in my body and to ease my breathing in steps so that the lactic acid didn't distress me. I found that the immediate moment is best because the reflective function of the mind gets in the way of the next moment and the already passed or lingered on moment hurts. I found it best to only count the last bit of breath after the expulsion. The in-breath would happen by itself. One to ten continuously for hours as the body and then extraneous thoughts fell away. Deep experiential interest me with breath allows calm acceptance of what arises. Fatigue shows that the body performs actions, yet does not perform them. In pre-season training you find that you are nothing and also an infinite vastness. It can be like the moment when your body falls asleep, yet your consciousness is still awake. Where are you? As I was learning that physical walls are not barriers, but something to be watched and stretched, and eventually treated as a gate, I developed a concurrent interest in spiritual and philosophical ideas. These interests had started in grade five, so when I was ten. I took to writing a lot of poetry and keeping diaries of interesting points from the books I was reading. I've still got some of the diaries, and when I shifted house, it was quite delightful to see what I'd written in grade five, six and seven. I was quite religious. By grade seven, contemplation of passages and ideas from these books usually continued into my warm-ups and reappeared in the cool-downs at the end of training. These included Indra Shah's books on Sufism and Paul Rep's Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, which I read in grade seven. After a couple of years of always turning up to training and putting in my best effort, I got fit. So fit that as I grew into my teenage years, I roamed or ran large distances quite freely. For example, a fellow footy friend and I thought nothing of half jogging and walking to Subiaco from his Bentley home and back in an afternoon. Or wandering on a summer's day along either Canning or Stirling Highway from my home in Eastwick Park to Fremantle and back. That meant that we could have girlfriends in very far suburbs. <laughs> In year eight, at my school athletics carnival, I beat most of the field in the 800 metres by a lap 
my record stood for 25 years. Thus regular training will condition you so that what you regard as the norm to others might seem peculiar or special. Training. Training is firstly about the conscious practicing of skills and is made up of a lot of repetitions, of run-throughs, of weight lifts, of kicking, tackling or marking drills. It is repetition with awareness and, as my dad said, repetition builds fluency. Furthermore, with every exercise and repetition, one is working towards that moment when eventually your actions and reactions respond without judgment, without hesitation, and you are able to play in the moment. If you know how to train, you can train anywhere. If you know how to meditate, you can meditate anywhere. But to succeed in gaining this in-the-moment awareness, you cannot cheat. You have to put in the training. If you do so, there is a fundamental tranquility that eventually arrives, but which seems to do so unexpectedly and suddenly because it is embodied rather than just footy knowledge. Hours and hours and years of training are what build or built its momentum. Meanwhile, you develop a steadiness and sureness of stride and kick that allows you to overcome the doubt, self-blame of panic and desperation that can swamp you in the middle of the game. When the tensions and conflicts of a game arise, you think, why am I doing this? Get the ball, get the ball. The why can constitute years of doubt. And then suddenly, within the heightened tensions, you shift into calm clarity about what, what to do and where to be. This development and discipline of calm becomes an unshakable balance. Finding similar stillness and centred balance occurs in Zazen. Discipline. There are three main kinds of discipline required during a football game. None have a basis in emotion. The first is of restraint. One has to hold position and not get prematurely pulled into the game. The second is of constructive awareness. One must see what is happening and concurrently deconstruct and creatively reconstruct what is unfolding so that one's concentration and ability to respond stays at the crest of a rolling surge. The third kind of discipline is this concentration. It allows the insight and energy of your contribution to be keyed to the surge. Right action is the result. The feeling of tireless buoyancy is what it allows. It is also quite joyful as from this state one plays with a precognitive and intuitive sense. For example, I'd see an opposition player streaming from the centre with the ball, know where it was going to be kicked and where the player it was being kicked to would receive it, then somehow cover the 30 metres to chest mark in front of the bewildered intended receiver. I just knew through the intensity of my concentration that it could be done and so did it. Such weekly feats made me start to wonder about the mind and human limitations. Not that I could always, when such things started happening, play in this state. I knew it had started happening because of my focus, but initially it had an uncanny aspect that really spooked me. For a year or two I oscill oscillated between being too self-conscious and being too anxious, 
about what a, such a state meant to regularly get there. Eventually I developed an ability to focus and unify myself so that the action appeared and completed itself correctly. That is, I emerged with the ball without me exerting independent effort. And I found that abiding there one doesn't get tired. You can run for a whole game. You don't get tired until the focus is broken. Through regular training one develops focus, discipline and conditioning. Coaches. The coaching you receive is important for how your skills, insights and persistence grow. I found that there are two types of footy coaches and I'll call them form coaches and emptiness coaches. Form coaches like you to run endless ball or team drills and tend to yell a lot. Mine also like to sometimes eyeball you and physically poke or prod your chest to put emphasis on what they were stating. This type also tended to give out physical punishments and never say much that was positive. In contemporary sport, coaching the boot camp antics have decreased. However, form coaches are still out there yelling and drilling and telling players to run another lap. In footy, emptiness coaches are fewer in number and tend to be the specialist or visiting observer coaches. They teach you by their own presence alongside you at training and through their own modelling of skills or by minimal but individual and pointed guidance. Thus they demonstrate the elegance and presence of an embodied skill or they silently but dynamically observe you and then make a single suggestion or correct a single element of your posture and say why that creates a better dynamic or angle. The names are now probably not known by some of the people in the room but legends of the game such as Barry Cable and Kevin Sheedy had these qualities and I always enjoyed having them come down and coach me at development camps for promising players. For example, at the development camps we were told that to play professional football, which was expected to be our goal, we had to learn to effectively pass the ball with either foot or either hand. Nearly all of us had spent our lives passing the ball with a favoured foot or hand. It was requested that we regularly practice disposing of the ball from both sides of the bottom of our body. And there was then always an exercise just after we told this in which we had to use our non-preferred side. In this exercise there was much laughing and clumsy kicking or punching of air. But after that there was no further requirement to train both sides of our bodies and most of us fell quickly back into old habits. I attended a couple of camps before I took the request seriously. The change to my attitude came about when Kevin Sheedy, a well-known champion player and coach to some, took us for a few camp sessions. Sheedy fronted up to us boys and made the yearly request that we learn to effectively dispose of the ball from either side, but then showed us why. He told us that we had to be able to naturally use either side of our bodies and that this naturalness would take lots of practice. He said that such a skill would broaden our capabilities and make the way we would turn to dispose of the ball unpredictable to the opposition. He then lined us up in a single file about 20 metres in front of him and then one by one kicked the ball along the ground to us. 
we had to gather the ball and pass it around him or over him to a player moving around about 20 metres behind. Shidi then proceeded to demonstrate to every single one of us how easy it was for him to block our passes as how we moved towards the ball made it really easy for him to predict which way we would go to dispose of it. He managed to block our efforts until most of us were bent over or sprawled on the ground from exhaustion. And it was very rapid by the end of it because we were trying to get it past him. <laughs> After the medley of attempts ceased, Sheedy simply stood there in front of us with a twinkle in his eyes. Such short fire exertion puts you in a hyper state of awareness. I realised Sheedy had gotten each of us involved in an experience that forced immediate responses, one which didn't allow us time for observation and interpretive thinking. I listened intently when he calmly said, from the standpoint of the ball, there is no left and right. Apply this to your own body. Shidi also said when we felt disheartened and that we would never succeed in mastering a particular skill that we use a less than perfect body, so do the best you can. Some other exercises Shidi did with me one-on-one -on -one, were a series of tackling and spoiling exercises. He knew I'd begun to specialise as a backman and so took me aside and coached me on how to position myself, tackle and get the ball. One of the tasks was Sheedy grasping the ball and telling me to get it off him. His grip was phenomenal, but the lesson was the one who grasped the ball must become the ball itself. It's hard to put into words, but truly you can't pry the ball from the ball. In Zen we might say, emptiness itself is form. Thus there is no difference between you, the other player or the ball, and you replace them with you. You can therefore get the ball any time you want to. With Sheedy, I'm sure he let me pry the ball off him at least once. He wanted to encourage me. But the first time it happened, I somehow found myself holding the ball and there was Sheedy grinning back at me. I felt wild-eyed and was certainly sweaty, but I sobered up when he snatched the ball back. <laughs> Whoever maintains their concentration wins. Sheedy's kindness was that he didn't just tell me what to do. Indeed, ask him something and he was more likely to remain silent, go fetch a ball and kick or hand pass it to you, or actually say, I won't say. Any explanation usually happened after you found out something for yourself when he used few words to clarify the experience. Shidi knew that there is a big difference between having understood it in your head and having grasped the physical reality of it. Such camps and training sessions which I attended from uh, 14 years of age onwards gave me plenty of time for reflection on how a player becomes their best. I became very conscious of my own skills and their part in the whole. For some reason at one of the camps we started to chant, the boys at night in the bedroom, laying in our beds, darkness, and all of a sudden this chant. Although the players were from different districts and clubs, we chanted the Three Musketeers Oath. 
All for one and one for all. All for one and one for all. Afterwards it became one of my favourite sayings and I like to say it over and over whether I was at training or in a game as a way of settling quickly into the right state of mind. We were one team playing as one player at one mint as the ball. <laughs>